Well, if you will, uh, open with me now to uh, Psalm 18 in your Bibles. Psalm 18. Up until this point, we have uh, been covering one psalm at a time as we've been making our way through uh, the book of Psalms. Um, That is, up until this point. (laughs) Uh, Psalm 18 is uh, one of the longer uh, psalms um, in the Psalter, and so we're going to We're going to go through it in parts. This morning, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, just verses 1 to 19. 1 to 19 will be uh, our passage, and then we'll probably look at uh, two other sections as we we make our way through it, or or cover it in two different different sections. As we have uh, been making our way through the Psalms, of course, uh, one of the themes or one of the things that I've, I've wanted to, to bring out is being able to see Christ in the Psalms and to understand how they are pointing us to Christ, how they are, in essence, telling the story of Christ and the work of Christ that He would accomplish how David in his own life was a type of the Christ who was to come. And as we start making our way through Psalm 18, this theme is going to continue. Um, I want you to see more of Christ. Because the more we see of Christ and the more we see of His glory and beauty, the more faithful we will walk in our own Lives. And so again, we will, we will see and, 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 and look at this, this same theme uh, throughout this psalm as well. Um, so we'll begin by reading together, um, starting with the, uh, the superscript at the top, and then we'll read from verse 1 uh, down to verse 19. So this is, of course, a, a psalm of David. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we read the superscript beginning... Uh, at the top says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. 
From His temple He heard my voice, and my cry to Him reached His ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because He was angry. Smoke went up from His nostrils and devouring fire from His mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from Him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under His feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness His covering, His canopy around Him. Thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before Him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through His clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And He sent out His arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at Your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of Your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. Well, let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, You showed Yourself faithful to Your servant David your prophet and king. The one you you had anointed. The one you had established a covenant with and made promises to. You told him that you would establish his throne. That his offspring would reign on it forever and ever. And because of your promises, no matter how great the enemies were that came against him, They were ultimately doomed to be vanquished because Your Word can never fail. And in the same way, Lord, You accomplished this same mighty work of salvation for Your Son, the offspring of David, who had enemies coming against Him, who even gave Him over to the power of death as they crucified Him on the cross. But because You had made promises that You would establish the throne of David forever, not even the grave could keep Him. And because of this work, Lord, now we who are united to the King in faith have great hope. Because He has gone before us He has defeated the power of sin and death. And at His appointed time, He will bring His kingdom to us. We thank You, Lord, for the Gospel. And we pray that as we 
make our way through this psalm, that you would help us to see more of Christ. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our psalm that we are in this morning is a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of praise. It is a victory psalm. It is sung in light of the establishment of David's throne. We are told again in the superscript of the psalm that David addressed the words of this psalm to the Lord when all his enemies, including Saul, had been defeated. We find the psalm also quoted in full in 2 Samuel 22 as a kind of conclusion to the narrative of David's life. There's, there's a little bit more that happens after this, but it comes at the end of his life. It comes on the heels of his victories over Absalom and over all of Absalom's co-conspirators. It comes on the heels of David warring with the Philistines again and conquering them. You'll remember that God had made this covenant with David, just as He had made a covenant with Abraham, just as He had made a covenant with the nation of Israel. And in this covenant that God made with David, He promised to establish David's throne and to place one of his offspring on that throne forever. And David, here in the psalm, is praising God because he's keeping his word. He's keeping his covenant promises made to him. At the root, then, of all of David's victories was this covenant, was the Davidic covenant, and God's promises that are made through it. David's victories were not ultimately the result of his own strength, of his military strategy, of his reputation among the peoples. His victories over his enemies were the direct results of God's sovereign hand and determination to fulfill His Word. And this is what the whole psalm is celebrating and praising God for. But as we've seen before, as we've been making our way through the Psalter, this psalm is not just about David and his kingdom, but it is also most especially even about Christ and His. It is about God establishing the throne of David's offspring. David himself understood that what happened in his life would be the kind of thing that would happen in an even greater way in the life of his son. In fact, at the very end of the psalm, if you look with me at the end of the psalm, we read David saying this, he says, great salvation the Lord brings to His King and shows steadfast love to His anointed, to His, um, His Messiah, His Christ, to David 
and to his offspring forever. The salvation that God gave to David was not just unique to David. It was a foretaste. It was the first fruits, if you will, of the salvation that God would give to David's seed, who is Christ. And as a prophet, David knew this. He knew what he was doing when he was writing the psalm. He knew he was not only describing the events of his own life. Some of David's last words, we read, come from 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, where David says there, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. And as a prophet, David understood that the words that he wrote were not just his own words, but the words of the Spirit of God speaking about Christ. And therefore, this very psalm, as we've seen in others, is not just about David's afflictions and David's victories, but Christ's afflictions and Christ's victories. Now this is something that was recognized for a long time in the history of the church until we had the rise of modern, unbelieving, higher criticism that basically ripped Scripture to shreds and didn't see any cohesive unity in it. But prior to the rise of modern Protestant liberalism, this was basically the way that Christians had understood the, the book of Psalms. Speaking about David, but speaking ultimately also about Christ. Theodore Beza, for example, who was a disciple of John Calvin, said of this particular psalm that on account of the spirit of prophecy, David is certain that his kingdom, flourishing so well, is merely an image and likeness of that eternal kingdom of the Messiah who will be born of him. And similarly, Philip Melanchthon, who taught alongside Martin Luther, the German reformer, Melanchthon said, the afflictions and victories of David are a type of the passion and victory of Christ. Thus, the psalm itself does not speak about David alone, but simultaneously signifies both the afflictions and victory of Christ. Even though David recites these things concerning himself, nevertheless, he was looking toward the coming of Christ, whom he thought would have similar afflictions and glorious victories. And as we read earlier from Romans chapter 15, the Apostle Paul himself understood this psalm as being fulfilled in Christ and His kingdom evidenced by the fact that the nations, the Gentiles, were now worshiping and serving the one true God on account of the work of Christ, just as Psalm 18 said they would at the end of the psalm. The point is that when we think about David and his kingdom, 
We should understand Him. We, we should read the narrative of His life, the events of His afflictions and victories as a microcosm, as a shadow and an outline of the greater kingdom that is Christ. And in that light, we are to understand this very psalm as a victory psalm, prophetically depicting the victories of Christ and His kingdom. This is a song of triumph, of victory. When the Messiah is saved from the power of the grave, as we saw in Psalm 16, and He arises to take His place in the presence of God, as we saw in Psalm 17, and He's given victory over all His enemies, Psalm 18 is the psalm that the, the Messianic King sings in thankfulness to God for God fulfilling His Word to Him. It, we're, we're, like, we're at the end of history here. If we think about the scheme of the history of salvation, this is Psalm 18 as the point at which all the enemies have been conquered. And now the Messiah is leading His people to sing praise to the God who has brought this deliverance and fulfilled His Word. And in the particular section of the psalm that we're in this morning, we, we see three things about the King and His victories. I'm going to look at a few of those with you this morning. And the first concerns the heart of the King. We see here in the psalm the heart of the King. All of His heart's affections, all of His trust is placed in God. He says, if you look at me at verse 1 again, He says, I love You, O Lord, my strength. I love You, O Lord. I, I think that, that word alone, you need to just sit with and ponder on for a moment. He says, I love You, O Lord. That's not something you say when God is far from your heart. That's affection. That's something you say when your heart is warmed towards Him. It can be very easy for even the most religious people there are to say things like, You are mighty, O Lord. You are powerful, O God. You are great, O Lord. And these are all, of course, no doubt, true statements that can be made about God, but they can also be statements that can be made from a distance. They can be made from the lips of people with dead hearts. They can be said from a heart that knows nothing of God. Even the statement, Jesus is Lord, can be said by someone with a dead heart. It can be said purely as an understanding of Jesus as a symbol of strength. But to say, I love you, that requires a heart that indeed does love God. 
As I was, as I was reading this psalm this, this past week, it, it made me think about hearing my grandfather, but call him Papa, hearing his prayers. Whenever he prays, he's always praying, he's, 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 he's lifting up his petitions to the Lord, and he always ends them. We love you, O Lord. We love you. He's expressing not just a, a, a statement that has no meaning on his lips. This is his heart. This is the heart here of the king. He loves God. The king will no doubt go on to speak of God in other ways that display his power and his glory. But for the king, God is not only his savior. He's not only majestic and powerful, but he's the one the king loves with his whole heart. I think it's worth asking ourselves this, this very question. Is, is this our posture towards God? Can we say of Him? Do we say of Him? I love you, Lord. In your prayers, you may be able to say things like your kingdom come, your will be done. You may be able to say things like you, O Lord, are sovereign over all things. But can you say or do you say, I love you, Lord? This is the heart of the king. And it's really, by extension, the heart of the Christian. There's really no category for the Christian who does not love the Lord with his whole heart. And so the question we, we, we ought to ask ourselves, you ought to ask yourself, do you love him? Can you answer in the affirmative to that question? I love the Lord. Now, as the psalm continues, we also find some of the reasons why the king loves the Lord. It's because the Lord saves him. It's because God is good to him. He saves him from his enemies. He is his rock. He is his shield. He protects him. He guards him. And thus, when the king faces some kind of trouble, no matter how great it may be, he knows that he can call upon the Lord and the Lord will answer him. He will not turn his ears away from hearing the cries of his king. And so he fully trusts in God. These first three verses that we, we find here, they really are a kind of summary of the whole psalm. The, the king loves the Lord because he can call upon the Lord in his afflictions and the Lord will save him. In fact, the Lord did save him. And that's what the rest of the, the, the psalm goes on to describe. How God has revealed Himself as the rock, as the shield, as the one who protects and guards and saves His King. Then he begins to unpack this particular truth in a little bit more detail. And as he does, he goes on to describe 
some of the afflictions that he endured, some of the, the causes for him crying out to God for salvation. This is the second thing that we see about the king here in the psalm is his afflictions. In verses 4-5, to the king here speaks of his afflictions as no little thing. He's not, he's not talking about driving to work and he got stopped by too many traffic lights that morning. These are, these are weighty matters. He's dealing with death itself. His afflictions have come from the power of death. His enemy was the grave and the power at work within it. In these verses, verse 4-5, to death is here being personified as a living being whose intention is to surround and destroy the king. Death here has cords or, or ropes. It has snares. It plots and attacks and strikes at the time that it sees fit. And the snares that it uses to accomplish its destructive aims towards the king are people. People who are loyal to the power of death. It's the sinners who are described in Proverbs 1 who lie in wait for blood and ambush the innocent without reason and swallow them alive like Sheol. It's the adulterous woman of Proverbs 7 who has many victims, who slays the mighty, and whose house is the way to Sheol. It's the king's enemies. It's all of the wicked who are seeking to kill him. They are the powers that death and Sheol are using to afflict the king. And therefore, death and Sheol are a kind of spiritual power here that is an enemy of God Himself. Which is why also you can find a, a, a lot of commentators who have perhaps rightly understood the second part of verse 4 as being a reference to Satan. The word here for destruction, these torrents of destruction, the word for destruction is Belial, which often refers to chaotic behavior that overthrows any rule of law. It's the, it's the word that's applied or, or translated often as worthless men when it's talking about these worthless men who are bearing false witness against the innocent in order to kill them. Right? They're bringing societal chaos in and through their sin. But in the New Testament, this word is another proper name for Satan. Paul, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, in verses 14 to 15, he asks the question there: What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? And of course, there. He's referring to Satan as Belial. This is another name that the Jews used at the time to describe Satan. And so it's possibly the case 
that the psalm is directly speaking here about a satanic conflict. But either way, the point is that the powers of death are what have been assaulting the king. His enemies are not just the men who are coming after him, however evil they may be. His enemies are the principalities and powers. It's what Paul refers to in Ephesians 6 as the cosmic powers over the present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the king's enemy. That's what's assaulting him in this moment. He is a king who is very much acquainted with the sufferings of death. With the power of sin and death. Which means for us, friends, that he is a king who very much understands our own afflictions. There's not a single affliction we've ever endured that Christ knows nothing of. He knows the power of darkness. He's familiar with it. Hebrews teaches us that as our high priest, Christ was tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin. He knows what it is to engage in spiritual warfare. He knows what it is to have the spiritual powers at work in godless men who are seeking to kill Him. He knows the power of evil and the afflictions that come with it. And therefore, He knows our afflictions, no matter how small or how great they may seem to be. He knows the weaknesses of our flesh. He knows how easy it is for things like hunger to become a temptation that leads us away from the living God. He knows all of the schemes of the devil. And He knows them all because in His humiliation, He was assaulted by all of them. And because of this, friends, He is able also to guide us through those afflictions and ultimately to the salvation that is to be found in God. He has already walked the path. He has been given a decisive victory over His enemies, including that of death. And therefore, He is able to guard us and to keep us and to lead us to the God who saves. Which then brings us to the third point in the psalm. The, thing, the, the third thing that I want you to see about the king here, which is his salvation. And this is where we're going to spend most of our, our time this morning. His salvation. From verse 6, basically all the way down to verse 19, the king describes the salvation that God gave to him in answer to his cries, in answer to him being assaulted by the powers of death. He was in distress. He was surrounded by his enemies. He was 
or at least death was attempting to ensnare him in its cords, he was in a state of utter helplessness and dependence. And in that state, he cried out to God, and God from his temple heard his cries and saved him. But I think it's important for us to see how the psalm describes this great work of salvation. The way it describes it is as if all of the prior times when God responded to the cries of His people in the past and saved them, all of those prior acts of salvation are all converging together into a single act of God saving His anointed King. The plagues that came upon Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the theophany of God at Sinai, His appearing to the people of Israel, the conquests of the nations in the wilderness and in Canaan, all of these historical events are used here to describe the kind of miraculous and powerful work of salvation that God worked and accomplished for His King. At Sinai, you'll remember that when the Lord came down in His power and majesty on the mountain, Exodus tells us that the whole mountain trembled greatly. It was shaking, quaking before the power of God. There was thunder and lightning. There was thick cloud and darkness. There was smoke surrounding the mountain because the Lord had descended upon it in flaming fire. It was a moment in the history of the world and most especially in the history of the people of Israel that was both breathtaking and terrifying. They trembled as He came down to Sinai, fearing that even by merely seeing Him, they might be struck dead. And this is what is being described in verses 7 to 11. In response to the cries of the king, the Lord comes down from heaven to act, and to act in a powerful way on behalf of his king. And when he comes down, verse 7 says that the earth reeled and rocked. The mountains are trembling and quaking. In verse 8, there is smoke going up from his nostrils because fire and flaming coals are going out from before him. In verse 9, he bends the heavens down. It's really as if the weight of his feet, which are enthroned over the heavens and the earth. The weight is so heavy that now the sky that is spherical is beginning to bend. It flattens out and then begins to descend to the earth. He is bending the heavens down at His coming. 
And he is surrounded by thick darkness. And verse 10, if you look with me there, adds that he rides on a cherub, riding on the wings of the wind. And these these cherubs, these are heavenly, angelic, winged creatures who dwell in the, below the heavenly throne of God. We, we see a vivid description of them, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 10 and Ezekiel's vision of the throne room of God. And there the cherubs are mounted on chariots whose wheels have flaming fire between them. And so in verse 10 of the psalm, when God rides on the cherub, He's descending from heaven, coming with the clouds and with fire. And in verse 11 again, surrounding Himself with thick clouds of darkness. This is Sinai. This is the power of Sinai coming upon the whole earth. This is God in all of His terrifying glory. In His unveiled majesty that caused the people to shake at the mountain. This is the God of Sinai coming to rescue His King. Then, in verses 12-13, to the psalm describes hailstones and coals of fire coming out from God. This here is alluding to that seventh plague against Egypt. We read about it in Exodus chapter 9, verse 23 and following. And it says that when Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, bringing the seventh plague of judgment, the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire rained down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt and everything in the field, whether man or animal or trees, all of it was struck down. Here again, the salvation of God at the Exodus provides the best description of God's salvation given to His King. And then the same theme continues in verses 14-17. to Here in these verses, you have a blending of the crossing of the Red Sea and the destruction of the Egyptian armies with Israel's victories over other nations that they faced in the wilderness. In Numbers chapter 10, verse 35, when the Israelites, whenever they broke camp, the Ark of the Covenant which represented the presence of God and which had upon it depictions of the cherubs overlaid with gold, this ark would set out and go before them, symbolizing the fact that it was God who would give them victory over their enemies. It was God who would ride out on the cherubs, ride out in battle, and would fight for His people. And whenever the ark would set out, Moses would proclaim these words. He would say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And the psalm says, that God does this very thing 
for his king. Verse 14 says there, and he sent out his arrows and he scattered them. That is, he scattered the king's enemies. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. And when those enemies were scattered, it was like the sea had been parted for the king and he walked safely through it on dry land. Verse 15 says that the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at Your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of Your nostrils. This verse that is quoted here is in fact almost an exact quotation of the words that were sung in Exodus 15, verse 8. When the people of Israel crossed through the Red Sea and Pharaoh's whole army was killed. They sang at that time a victory song. And they sang, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And like them, the king himself was drawn out of many waters and rescued from his strong enemy. He was brought through safely through the parting of the sea. He was brought through safely as Moses was when he was released on a sea, on a river, and saved from those many waters. You can see it all throughout this section of the psalm as, as David is describing the victories that the Lord gave him over his enemies. He's not describing all of the exact details of his own circumstances. There were certainly times that we read about in some of his battles where the Lord literally thundered from heaven and threw the Philistines into confusion. But David's not just describing one event here. He's not just describing one battle that he's had. He's summarizing towards the end of his life his whole life. He's painting a vivid picture of how God delivered him from all of his enemies. And as he does so, as he is speaking of God's covenant faithfulness to him, and of God's rescuing him from his enemies, who by any other worldly standards should have easily conquered David, David was often on the run for his life, having only a few hundred men with him, having to battle against tens of thousands. To any rational standard, when David was given over to the cords of death, he should have died. And yet time and time again, he was delivered from his enemies. And so as he's speaking here of God's covenant faithfulness to him, he is saying that what God did for Israel at the Exodus, He did for him also when He established His throne. God loved His covenant people Israel. So He saved His covenant people Israel. He brought them safely out of bondage through the sea. And God loved and delighted in His covenant King. And therefore, He saved Him also. David 
understood his own life as a kind of recapitulation, a repeating of the whole history of Israel. This is why he describes his victories in God as a kind of repeating of the events of the Exodus and the wilderness. But again, he also understood as a prophet that what God did for him, he would also do for his offspring. Great salvation He brings to His King, He says at the end of the psalm, to David and to His offspring forever. David understood himself to be a type of the One to come. Which means that David recognized that his future son, that the Christ would likewise live a life that would be a kind of repetition of Israel's whole history. And that the Christ would fulfill in an even more expansive way. He would relive the events of the Exodus and the history of Israel. Which is why, friends, when you read through the Gospels, that's what you see. You see the history of Israel unfolding in and through the life of Christ. Like Moses, he was saved from a wicked king trying to kill him at his birth. Like Abraham and Israel, he was brought down into Egypt for a period of time in order to escape death. And then he was brought back into the land. Like Israel's, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness where they were tested by God. So also did Christ go into a wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to be tested and tempted. Like David, he was betrayed by those who were closest to him and hunted down by his own kinsmen. Like the prophets, he was persecuted. Like the priests, he offered sacrifice. And like the Passover lamb, His blood was spilled so that death might not ever enter into the house of any of His people. But you see, friends, where all of the others in history's past, in the book of Genesis, the Exodus, the Numbers, whereas all others who had gone before Him had sinned and failed, where Adam had failed, where Abraham had failed, where Israel as a nation failed to keep the law of God, where David failed as a king because he sinned against God, where all others failed, Christ in reliving that history would succeed at every single point. Christ was and is the embodiment of Israel. He is the truest Israelite there ever was. He is the one who was born king of the Jews, who was born under the law, and who upheld the law and fulfilled it at every point. In every aspect of the Old Testament, 
where we see something is incomplete or unfulfilled or unperfected, Christ is the one who perfects it all in Himself. Where the blood of animals was only sufficient for ritual purification and was insufficient to purify the conscience from sin and to cleanse the soul before God, the blood of Christ was sufficient to cover all of the sins of His people and to cleanse the conscience and make us righteous forever before the living God. Where the kings of Israel often sinned against God and were therefore given over to judgments, having enemies sinned against them, Christ obeyed perfectly and is eventually exalted over all of His enemies. Where national Israel, as God's Son, complained and rebelled against Him in the wilderness and worshipped idols, Christ, as God's beloved Son, His chosen One in whom is all His delight, this Christ obeyed the Father even to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God has parted the seas for His Son. He has brought Him to a broad place. He has made Him to walk on dry ground. But the sea that was parted for Christ was not a sea of water, but the sea of death. A far greater sea. A far greater enemy of chaos. Now that sea has lost all of its power because of the faithfulness of Christ and the salvation given to Christ from God the Father. Now with the mere raising of the hand or the utterance of a single word, Christ has the authority to cast death and Hades into the lake of fire. And once He has gathered all of His people, once all of the Gentiles who are called by His name and whom He calls out of the world are drawn to Himself, once He crushes His enemies who remain in rebellion against Him, once the Gospel accomplishes every last work that God intends for it, He will ride forth on the cherubim with His right hand outstretched and He will grab death by the throat and cast it into the lake of fire forever and ever. And there will be nothing it can do about it. He will crush the head of the serpent and crush its power. And we who have trusted in Christ as our King. We who can say of Him, our Lord, I love You, Lord, because we too have been saved through His work. We too will be brought by Him and with Him into a glorious, broad 
place. We will be brought into a new Jerusalem. And we will, sh- will sing the victory song of our King as we live and as we work and as we enjoy the fruit of the land forever and ever. Friends, when He returns, we are not entering into a period where there's no more history. When, when He returns, we're not being transformed into spirit creatures who are going to float around for all eternity. History continues on at His coming. In the same way that His incarnation brought a decisive new turn in history, but history continued, so also at His return will history continue. Will we live on the land? But now in this glorious land, there will be no sin, there will be no death, there will be no cursing because all of His enemies, including death itself, will be crushed under His feet and ground to dust. The victory that the King is given is a victory He will and does extend to all of His people. And when that day comes, we will sing like Him and with Him of the glorious salvation of God who has brought us through an even greater exodus, saving us from the tyrannical Pharaoh of death, saving us from our sins, parting the sea for us, and bringing us into the promised land where we will dwell with Him forever and ever. That, friends, is the hope that the King has secured for us. And because of that, we can say and sing to Him, I love you, O Lord. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do indeed love You. And we love You because in Your mercy and grace, and because of who You are as a covenant-keeping God, from long ago, You had ordered, fixed, determined a plan to bring about salvation to ungodly, sinful men. To bring to Yourself a people not only from the ethnic nation of Israel, but from all of the nations, the Gentiles of whom we are a part. You had set and planned a work of salvation that would bring about a day when no longer would humanity be in rebellion against You. But once again, we would be walking in Your presence in a glorious garden that covers the whole earth. And we long for that day, O God, to come. In the same way that in power You conquered sin and death through Christ Your Son, we long for the day to come when He returns in glory and majesty 
riding on the wings of the cherub to bring that salvation. And we will sing of his praise forever and ever. So bring it, O God, to us. Save your people. Bring the nations to yourself and come, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.